how's work? We ask each other. And almost without thinking, we say things like, oh, it's so busy. It's only Tuesday. I can't wait for the weekend. The boss is a slave driver. I'm hanging out for a holiday. We often complain about work, and yet the biblical story is that God made us to work. Work has lots of benefits, not least of which is uh, the capacity to earn money. Money itself is not bad. Money can be used to do lots of good. It pays for things for ourselves. It can help the people around us. It can build God's kingdom. So that's our topic today. Work and wealth. Uh, in particular, how can we generously use our wealth? So the first thing I want to say about uh, work is that God has built work into the fabric of creation. Uh, creation begins with God working. Genesis 2, we read this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing and he rested. Uh, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Creation is seen as work. Uh, and then when he creates people and makes them in his image, uh, one of the facets of that is that we get to work as well. Genesis 1.27, God creates people male and female, uh, and then he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the birds and every living creature. God declares all of that creation with humanity ruling and subduing and filling uh, as very good. That's God's good design. Uh, as we move into chapter 2, uh, a complementary picture of that same act of creation, God puts Adam into the Garden of Eden, verse 15 we read, to work and to care for the garden. Uh, that word for work has got the idea of cultivating of working so that even more will be produced, of being creative as God himself is creative. And that word for take care has the idea of stewardship, of having, of keeping a watch over, of bringing what you're watching to fruition, making the most of it. God has given us a responsibility to keep his world so that it continues to thrive and to produce. He gave us that responsibility, but he's also given us a paradise. Uh, the Garden of Eden uh, was full of wonderful things to enjoy, beautiful things to look at, delicious things to eat. Uh, in Eden, everything was in balance, with enough for everybody. There was fullness and abundance from a generous God. Now, that was then... You might say, hang on a minute, the world's not like that today, David, and that's true. Uh, lots changes after the fall. Uh, work becomes difficult, uh, but still, God's, work, God's world is good. Uh, God has generously given us things in this world. Uh, and God's command to be good stewards over his world continues as well. Uh, and as we look through the Bible and through history, the people who do best at being good stewards of what God's given them are those who understand God's generosity. Those people who are best at being good stewards are those who best recognise God's generosity. Uh, and the example in particular I want to think about this morning is King David in the construction of the temple. 
David wanted to build a temple. God had told him that it wouldn't be him, it would be his son Solomon who would build it instead. David says, okay, but what he's going to do is spend the last few years of his life getting everything ready so his son Solomon can build the temple. 1 Chronicles 22, we read about him storing up stone and logs and iron for nails and so much bronze it couldn't be weighed. He organises the labour force. A few chapters on, in chapter 28, he gets all of the leaders of Israel together and makes sure they understand what the plan is. Uh, then he gives King Solomon, or, or the, uh, his son Solomon, gives him a pep talk, and then he hands over the plans that David has designed, or that God's given him, and he's written down, uh, including right down to the designs for the lampstands and the bowls. Uh, he's not going to build it, but he's almost doing everything but building it. Now, I think that's a great example for us in the things that we give to God and his work. David didn't just donate his wealth, he gave his time, his energy and his wisdom in organising as well. And often that's the greater cost. Uh, For most of us, uh, let's be honest, it's relatively easy to give money. A few buttons, click a few buttons on our phone and the money's there. And yet sometimes what's really needed by ministries and uh, uh, charities perhaps Uh, is our attention, our time, our skills, our energy. Maybe they need your professional advice. They need you to be on a board or to be a volunteer. Uh, Sometimes those things are the best way we can actually be multiplying our influence. So let me ask you, are you giving your money, but are you also giving yourself? Well, that was David. Uh, Let's keep looking at David. In chapter 29, uh, that was read for us by Alicia, he continues with his speech from 28, but now he zooms in on this topic of wealth and money. And he says in verse 2, With all my resources I've provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, etc. And then he says, verse 3, Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver, over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. So he brings the wealth of Israel that that sort of was in the the corporate uh, treasure room, but then he chipped in his own personal wealth as well. Now you might think, well, what's the point of that? That certainly sounds a bit like boasting to me, except for what he says next. Look there uh, there in verse 5. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? In other words, I've told you what I've given. What are you lot going to give? What are you going to contribute? He he describes all he gives merely as an encouragement for others to give as well. Does it work? Well, look at what happens next, verse 6. Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, hundreds and the officials gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, etc. The leaders follow the example of their king and they give generously. And then in verse 9 we read that all the people rejoiced, including David, verse 10, David also rejoices. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, 
O Lord, God of our Father, from everlasting to everlasting, yours is the greatness, power, glory, majesty and splendour. But look at what David praises God for. For everything in heaven and earth, everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are the strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we've given you only what comes from your hand. It's a fascinating insight, isn't it? David has just given this huge amount, but he's not proud. He doesn't expect to be praised for his donations. He doesn't need a plaque on the wall. It's God who deserves the praise. Everything comes from his generous hand anyway. So in a way, it's not even donating when you're giving your wealth away, when you're giving it to God or to somebody else. It's hardly even yours to begin with. It's more like you're simply passing it forward. You're passing on what has been generously given to you. Well, that's David. Jesus understood that view of a generous God. If we flip over to Luke chapter 12... In verse 22, he he teaches, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or wear. Why? Well, he says, consider. Consider the ravens. If God feeds the ravens, he'll feed you. You're more valuable than ravens. And verse 27, he, he says, consider how the lilies grow. If he clothes the lilies of the field, then then he'll clothe you. You're more valuable than flowers and then he finishes O you of little faith in other words God is generously providing for all of his creatures day after day and when we worry or fear that we'll have enough we're we're doubting God we're doubting his goodness and his generosity it's like you've been invited to an extravagant party at somebody's mansion You arrive and there's food and drink for everyone. It's piled high on tables. The drink fridges are full. The waiters keep coming around with trays of food and you've got your mouth full, you've got food in one hand, you've got a drink in another and they're offering you more and you've got nowhere to put it. They swap your half-empty drink for a full one. There's just stuff everywhere. But, But some people aren't convinced they doubt the host and, and so they look around and they grab trays of food for themselves and, and they pick up crates of drink and they, and they head off to a corner of the house to, to jealously guard what they've got just in case the food runs out. And that's what we do in the world when we worry and we fear. Jesus says, consider the ravens. Jesus says, take a look around at the party. Look at what's on the table. Look at what's in the fridge. Look at what your host has provided. It doesn't make sense to stockpile and accumulate. You're insulting the host. Jesus says, consider the ravens. Meditate on God's world and recognise his generous fingerprints all over it. 
And as you do that, says Jesus, verse 31, seek God's kingdom. Make him your top priority and he'll give you those things that you need. Why? He'll give them to you because he's generous. He's a generous God. He's made his world abundant and full. That's the way you trust him. That's the way you don't worry or fear. And when you seek God and his kingdom, and when you don't seek earthly things, then it's quite natural that you'll do this in verse 33, uh, that you'll give away those earthly things. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that won't be exhausted. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you begin to see God's generosity, it'll overflow in generosity to others. When you make God your treasure, your heart will be set on him Uh, Your life, your your priorities, your your purpose, your identity will be set on him. All those things will be about God and his kingdom rather than other stuff, rather than about clothes or food or money, rather than influence or pleasure or reputation or control. Uh, Those are general gifts from God. Uh, But of course the greatest gift God has given us, the one we really need to consider, is not... Uh, only the ravens and the lilies, but we need to consider Jesus, the greatest gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Consider Jesus. It's the gift of Jesus that will motivate us to be generous, the greatest gift of all. We have the greatest gift of all. We should be the most generous of all people, shouldn't we, as Christians? We should have the greatest motivation to be generous. Uh, That's certainly the logic that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, He's encouraging the Corinthian church to give to help the Jewish Christians suffering famine. He could command them, He says, I'm your father in the Lord, I I could tell you what to do, but I'm not going to do that. I'm I'm going to remind you of grace. Uh, Remind them of God's grace. Look at what he says in verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's just told them how the Macedonians have been generous even though they're poor. And then he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's why we're to be generous, because God has been generous to us. Jesus was made poor so that we might become rich. Paul goes on to give practical instructions about how they're to give on the first of the month and they're to be generous and cheerful. But then he finishes uh, chapter 9 with these words, just once more reminding them about God's generosity. Uh, How you can be cheerful when you give is by recognising and remembering God's generosity to you. Verse 13 he says, because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. In other words, 
You say you're Christian, now give. That shows your confession. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. Why? Because of the surpassing grace God has given you. It's actually a gift to be able to give. I was talking to Diego as he was uh, trying to organise his ministry support and he said, oh, I feel really bad going to churches and asking for money. And I said, well, in a way, you're giving them the opportunity to, to be partnering with you and to see them contributing something to the, to the gospel growing in Ecuador. And he said, yeah, that's true. That, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, it's not so much about me. It's giving them the opportunity to give. And, and that's what uh, Paul's saying here. Uh, the people who receive from you your gift, they're going to pray for you and give thanks for you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Uh, the gift of Jesus, the gift of being able to give and see his kingdom grow. And he finishes, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Uh, as we move through the Bible, we can find lots of biblical examples of people who did that. Uh, people who trusted a generous God and then gave to see the kingdom grow. Uh, like Luke chapter 8, uh, the 12 are following Jesus around, but there's also some women there who are uh, Mary, Joanna and Susanna who helped to support Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. Uh, the book of Acts, we read about the first Christians uh, who sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone who had need. And at the end of chapter 4 of Acts, we read something similar. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Uh, Luke's writing these words, but if you think about it, Luke himself was almost certainly financially supported by a patron. Uh, he researched and wrote his book, but uh, was almost certainly um, he was paid to, to write that book by Theophilus. And uh, we get a little hint of that in at the start of Luke, uh, where Luke writes, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Uh, likely what's happened is Luke is in Rome, he's with Paul, waiting Paul's trial. Theophilus is probably a Roman Christian who meets Luke and then pays him to write a history of how the Gospel made it from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And think what an amazing investment in the kingdom Theophilus made when he paid Luke to write down Luke Acts. How many millions of people have come into the kingdom through Luke's writing? It'd be great to know, wouldn't it? Or there's Paul himself. Romans 16, we get a little hint of a patron of his, Phoebe. Uh, she was probably not just a financial contributor, but uh, she was a, a deacon in, uh, in the church at Kencray in uh, Corinth. Uh, but probably uh, she was the courier for the letter to the Romans as well. And we read this in Romans 16. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Kencria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a great help to many people, including me. Now that word for help is the word for patron. She's been a great patron, someone who who supports and contributes. Uh, I could talk about plenty more gospel patrons down through history, Uh, people who generously supported gospel ministry, uh, people who recognised a generous God uh, and who took Jesus' command seriously. But I I do want to focus in on one uh, gospel patron in particular, Uh, His name is Colonel John Hay Goodlett. Uh, Around the end of the 19th century, he was one of Australia's wealthiest men, one of their shrewdest businessmen. Uh, And he was a member of this church for nearly 30 years. And there's his memorial stone up there on the wall. Uh, His contributions helped build this church in 1886 and the manse as well. Uh, He did the same thing in 1910 when the hall next door was built. Uh, It was subsequently named the Goodlett Sunday School and Institute after he died. Now, much like King David, he encouraged others to donate. He matched pound-for-pound donations for the congregation. That was the way he wanted to see... uh, He thought it was for the good of the congregation that they give and they receive the benefit. Uh, It's estimated that between 1883 and 1910 he contributed at least £8,000 out of a total cost of £14,500 for the three buildings. Uh, That converts into millions of dollars. Now, that's just extra to his normal Sunday giving. So this is just to a building fund. Also, like King David... uh, He didn't just give his money, he gave his time and his energy. Uh, Robert McGowan, who was minister here at the time of his death, said this about Goodlett. The most outstanding feature of his life was the fact he gave himself to Christian work. There are men who subscribe money, but Colonel Goodlett gave his best subscription when he gave himself. Uh, He became an elder at Ashfield in 1878. He'd been an elder previously at another church. He was faithful in attendance and performing his duties until his death in 1914. Uh, 36 years an elder here. Uh, He was an assembly elder from 1870 until his death in 1914. 44 years as an assembly elder. That's good service. Uh, He was on lots of Uh, assembly committees. He gave valuable business and financial advice. But it wasn't just these big, high, important affairs either. He taught Sunday school, was Sunday school superintendent (laughs) from 1876 to 1891 when there was a financial downturn and his business really required all of his efforts. And although they were childless, in 1876 uh, they unofficially adopted four children of the Copelands who were missionaries in the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu, after Elizabeth, the mother, died of tuberculosis. Now, there are many other charities to mention that Goodlett and his wife Anne donated to or were involved in helping to run. Uh, There was a consumptive home for 
tuberculosis sufferers who were impoverished when the government wasn't interested in helping them. There were homes for pregnant, abandoned, single women, once again, when the government wasn't interested in helping them. Uh, he set up what were called ragged schools uh, that aimed to reform, educate and improve the lot of destitute children. He was uh, one of the main people involved in setting up the deaf, dumb and blind institution. Uh, helped donate and run YMCA, Sydney City Mission, contributed to the Bush Missionary Society, much more. Uh, the Goodlets were well known and widely appreciated uh, by the media, by people in Sydney, but that wasn't what motivated them. Uh, Paul Cooper, his biographer, suggests that his generosity flowed from his genuine sympathy and tenderness towards others. For example, the uh, tuberculosis home, I think, came from Anne's first husband who died of tuberculosis. Uh, but this genuine sympathy and tenderness, uh, Paul Cooper writes, was enhanced, guided and nurtured by his consistent faith. His Christian faith was earnest, humble-minded and consistent, for he was as much a Christian in business as in the church and philanthropic work. But uh, Cooper also found a quote from Goodlett himself. I don't think he's recorded as having said much, but here's a little speech I'd love to hear or see all of it. Here's what he said in a speech to a group of Presbyterians, and I think it explains a lot of what motivated him. He said, Let them, that is, fellow Christians, never be unmindful. In other words, let them always be mindful that they could only succeed as God blessed their labours. Let one and all have a single eye to his glory, and then their Lord would honour their church by using it to add living stones to his temple. Oh, that's interesting, coming from a brick merchant. God forbid that they should ever be satisfied with mere outward prosperity. Uh, he recognised God's generous hand in the world. Like Jesus said, he considered the ravens, he considered the flowers, uh, and he praised God for it. He was humbled by it. And like Jesus said, it led him to seek God's kingdom as of far more importance than building earthly treasures. Uh, building his church rather than building his own empire. His passion was to see his king, God's kingdom grow. And so he gave generously, financially, of his time. And for all his, for all his earthly wealth, he built for himself something far more valuable, a treasure in heaven where no thief could steal, no moth could destroy. And I'm sure he would encourage us to do the same. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the height and depth and width of the love that you have for us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, might that vision transform us, uh, that in gratitude we might offer ourselves uh, as living sacrifices. We might offer our time, our money, our energy, our emotions. And we pray that you would use our humble offerings uh, to build your kingdom and build your church 
Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.